What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the New Evangelicals podcast. It is so good to be with you. I am Tim Whitaker, the host of the show and the creator slash facilitator of the New Evangelicals. We are a nonprofit organization. We hold space for folks who are marginalized by the evangelical church. We explore the Christian tradition outside of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism, and we advocate for accountability inside of evangelical spaces. It's good to be with you. Um, if you do not know, last week was Beer Camp, and Noah and I, our producer, we podcasted about that at length, so you can listen back to the three episodes that we did, giving our thoughts kind of in real time. It was really an unbelievable experience. It was amazing meeting so many people that I respect and look up to, and also new friends, so that was great. But we're back in the saddle, and by that, what I mean is, by the time you're hearing this, I'm going to be on vacation. Yes, I am on vacation with my family and some friends, um, so I'll be gone for this week. But on Instagram, I actually have other friends of mine taking over the account, doing all kinds of fun stuff. So if you want to see what they're up to, head over to the uh, New Evangelicals Instagram and take a listen. All right, on this episode of the podcast, I have Stephen Backhouse, who is back on the podcast. I had him on a long time ago. Stephen is really an unbelievable theologian, um, and we talk a lot about the theological problems with Christian nationalism. Um, I should also mention that Stephen is going to be doing a full lecture for us on our Theology 101 Zoom group this upcoming November, November 7th at 8 o'clock Eastern. The group is totally free to join. Go to the newevangelicals.com, uh, either log into your account that you made with us or create a new account. It's totally free, and you can sign up and get all the information, but it's going to be amazing having him unpack the theological issues with Christian nationalism, and this episode's kind of a taste of that. We also end up, not intentionally, it just kind of came up, we talked about Nathan Finocchio <laughs> for a bit because Nathan has been talking a lot about Christian nationalism lately, and I found the views very problematic, and so did Stephen. So Stephen talks about it and why he has some issues with it. And like I said, it wasn't it wasn't planned. It just came up, so we rolled with it. So that being said, I'm so excited to have this episode for you. I hope you enjoy it. That being said, of course, I want to thank everyone who listens to the show. It means so much. We are currently, as a nonprofit organization, in the middle of trying to fundraise an additional $2,500 in monthly support to keep everything going and to continue building the space that we've created as a community. So many folks chip in to make all this happen. And if that's you, if you want to help make the work that we do between the podcast, social media, Facebook, our, our educational content, our advocacy, etc., we could really use your help with donations. Here's the reality. If 150 people donate $20 a month, we are funded through the end of the year and into next year, which will be just so amazing. So if that's you, you can go to the, to the link in our show notes. You can click on the support us link and you can donate there. We are a nonprofit, so all, all donations are tax deductible. Also, I have a super exciting announcement. I can finally say it. We are doing our first ever in-person podcast event with our friends Mad Priest Coffee in April Joy in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I am so excited for this, friends. You have no idea. We're doing it December 17th at 6 o'clock Eastern. 
on site. We're going to have an audience. Hopefully, you're going to be there. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to record the whole thing. We're going to shoot the video for it. We're doing two live podcast recordings, including one that has audience Q&A. So if you want to know more details, go to the link in our show notes uh, for for the event and sign up to be some of the first people to know when tickets go on sale, which they will be going sale on sale at the end of the month. And again, I'm so pumped for this. It's an in-person event. Wow, wow, wow. We're finally doing it. I cannot wait to meet more of you. So make sure you go to that link, sign up to be the first to know when tickets are available, and I will see you there. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my episode with Stephen Backhouse. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all next time. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a hard time picking up and reading a Bible because your faith tradition ruined it for you, but you want to approach the Bible in a fresh way? Bibliotheca is a Bible that invites you to engage with the text in a totally different way, the way its ancient readers would have experienced it. Unlike a typical reference Bible that looks and feels like a dictionary, these books look and feel like inviting literature. You get five cloth-bound volumes, no chapters or verse numbers, no cross-references, no notes. Bibliotheca is currently taking pre-orders for another print run, and if you order now, you'll get special early bird pricing, and guess what? Big news. Your purchase will support TNE, that's us, as well. Use the code TNE22 when you check out, and $20 of every pre-ordered set will go toward the work that we do here at TNE. That is a win-win. Again, visit bibliotheca.co or check the link in our show notes, and be sure to use the code TNE22 when you check out. Thanks. Well, Dr. Stephen Backhouse, um, we've actually talked before, so it's great to see you again, honestly. Um, we, I was actually looking up the, um, in, on my uh, New Evangelical Archives. I had yeah. you on episode number 36 uh, with Rabbi Avi Feingold. Avi, yeah, yes. that's right. Yeah. Uh, talking about, you know, it was called a history of Christian nationalism. So it was great to have you. Now, we didn't really talk about Kierkegaard at all. And no. then I had on episode number 43, Aaron Simmons on, and I tell yeah. that uh, that podcast was called Who the Bleep is Kierkegaard. Yeah. And then I had on Thomas Millay on episode oh, number Millay. 56. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Millay. Um, who actually, I think I'm seeing, no, I'm seeing Aaron at Trip Fuller's uh, beer camp soon. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I had him on to talk about Kierkegaard, and both of them were like, wait, Tim, you're telling me that you had Stephen Backhouse on and you didn't talk about Kierkegaard? He's like he's like the, the, the leading authority on that dude. I'm like, no, I had no idea. So I'm redeeming myself. That's what I'm doing today. So it is great to have you back on the show. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Oh, it's nice. Yeah, my light was under a bushel. Now we're going to let it shine. <laughs> let it shine. Um, before we kind of hop into that, you know, I, we always like unpacking a little bit of, of the guests that we have on the show. So so what is your background? I mean, did, did you grow up Christian, evangelical? What what got you into Kierkegaard? And then I know you, you have a book that is either coming out or it's out about Kierkegaard and Christian nationalism. How did we get there from, from childhood Stephen? <laughs> I don't remember how much I mentioned about this with, with Avi, but anyway, um, so I'm Canadian. So this accent that you listen to, I'm, I'm, I'm in England right now. I live in England. I've been living in England for, for the last 26 years or so. Wow. But I'm actually originally Canadian. I grew up in uh, a very conservative area of Canada. You know, Canadians, we have a Bible belt, you know, you, Hey, you remember the freedom convoy? Yes. 
Well, those are all my people. The people I grew up with are the kind of people that were at the front of that freedom convoy, flying the flags and leaning on the horns, right? Right. So I grew up amongst those kind of people, real Mm. culture warriors, very evangelical, really associated patriotism with Christianity. All of my, I say often, you know, all of my friends, we wished, we all wished we were living in America so we could vote for the Republicans. Mm. And so we were all brought up completely steeped in the same kind of stuff that you'd be familiar with focus on the family liberty oh, yeah. university summit uh you yeah. know all that all that stuff apologetics all of that stuff that you guys in america invented we were just drinking that kool-aid we were guzzling it well you're in, welcome <laughs> up in my area of of uh, evangelical conservative canada yeah so anyway i grew up in that culture and i um but my dad is english i should probably hasten to add my parents weren't like that they were evangelical Christians, but they weren't, my dad is English and my mom is Australian. So they didn't have that, Mm. that American style evangelicalism in their roots, but I grew up that way. Right. So they Mm. sent me to a Christian school and I would, this was the sort of culture I was imbibing. But when I was 19, I just thought, Oh, I feel like I want to see what England is like. I had a British passport and I didn't want to be a tourist. So you know how, I don't know, in, in England, we call it a gap year. Do you call it gap years in America where you you take a year off between high school and university. Yes. Yes. Well, that was me. So I, so I was like, okay, for my gap year, I'm going to go to England and I'm just going to get a job. And my, I, so I moved to England, but it was, you know, it was a bit of a culture shock for me because I'd been really brought up to be a, to believe that evangelicalism, it was the same as being a culture warrior, you know, and mm. you really had, you knew exactly what evangelicals were supposed to believe when it came to, climate change or gays or guns or abortion or right. whatever you name the topic i knew exactly what answer i should was supposed <laughs> to give and yeah, yeah. all of my church environments you go into a church and and you just knew what everybody what answer everybody would give to any of those topics but i moved to england and i went, started going to a little uh anglican church which described themselves as evangelical anglican church and nobody was checking those boxes and sometimes there would be in, in the room, there'd be some people who didn't like gay marriage and some people who didn't believe in climate change or, but, or didn't like abortion, but not everybody. Right. Mm. And it was this sort of like weird environment. I was like, wait a second, you're all in a church together, but you don't all agree. Right. You don't all believe in six day creationism. You don't all believe in the rapture. Right. What the hell is going on? And it sort of threw me for a loop, actually. Sure. And I, and, and I took a, and I took a break from church, really. Hmm. Just because I was sort of sorting out culturally where I was, I was like, I'm used to the idea that being a Christian is the same as being a real conservative culture. Right. I took a break from church. I was working in a bookshop. I've many times. If anybody's heard me on another podcast, they'll know that what what I'm about to say. But I was working in a bookshop, and I had an employee discount, and I was I was using my employee discount to work my way through the world's classics. The kind of books that everybody's heard of but never read. Yes. Right? So <laughs> sure. I, I discovered you'll you'll be glad to hear I discovered Tolstoy, I discovered Dostoevsky, I discovered Kafka, and I discovered Kierkegaard mm. because of my employee discount at my bookshop. And I read the book called Fear and Trembling. And so now I was like nineteen twenty by this stage, and I was sitting in my little uh, one bedroom apartment, and uh, I was reading Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard. And, you know, it was like the, my world dropped out, the bottom of my world dropped out. Hmm. And I, I actually experienced vertigo. I've only experienced vertigo reading something before, once before, and that was reading a Batman comic. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> and it was, I felt dizzy. I was like, wow, something mm. he is described, something is happening here. He is describing my experience. He's mm. putting words to my experience. Here's this guy, you know, as you probably know, your listeners have heard Kierkegaard mentioned a number of times now, you know, he, Danish philosopher. He died in 1855. He never left Denmark. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't, he wasn't speaking to American evangelicals or English Anglicans or Canadian patriots. He wasn't speaking to us at all. He didn't even know we existed. Right. But he was writing to a Danish audience that if you ask the Danes, are you Christian? They would look at their skin, they look at their hand and go, oh, I'm white and I speak Danish. So of course I'm a Christian. Mm. And they'd associated their civilization, their membership to a certain civilization or a certain culture with being Christian. Huh. And Kierkegaard called that Christendom, the idea of we might call it cultural Christianity, or just this the idea that Christianity has now become a civilization. It's become associated with being the member of a certain group. And he, in fear and trembling, he talks about how that basically faith is the opposite of that. Like uh, uh, faith will not make you a better member of your society. It will make you a worse and more dangerous member of your society. And eventually for Kierkegaard, he would start to develop the idea that following Jesus will knock you out of respectability. It doesn't enhance your respectability. And all these Danes that so associated being a Christian with being a civilized, cultured member of their, of their society, of being a good citizen, hmm. he was saying, this is not only is this not Christian, this is anti-Christian. Hmm. It is anti-Christ. To think that Jesus, to take Jesus, the words and life of Jesus in the Gospels, and to see who he really was in the Gospels, and then to turn that into a, a, a byword for dominating power, for bourgeois <laughs> morality, mm. right? For upwardly mobile capitalist right. respectability. Like, this is the opposite of Jesus asked his people to leave their societies and to come and die. Mm. And Christendom says, become a Christian or be a Christian and your culture will triumph. Mm. And that for Kierkegaard was anti-Christ. So that's flicked a switch in me, man. Mm. And I was like, okay, I okay. care. Being a Christian is not the same as being a conservative patriot. I guess I need to start making a decision between being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus. You know, what's interesting about some of the language that you just used uh, a second ago Um you know, where you say that Kierkegaard would say that um, being a Christian doesn't enhance your respectability. It, it does the opposite of that in your society. Mm. It's interesting because a lot of the language I hear in my evangelical Christian nationalist culture, especially here in the States, is almost kind of the same idea. But what they mean is really like gaining power, right? Like, like what I hear a lot is like, oh, we don't we don't follow the culture's way of thinking. Oh, we're not, yeah, yeah. you know, we're going to be hated by people. And, you, yeah, know, yeah, we, was, you know, that kind of thing, right? Okay. I, I, okay, I feel like some people I, are just kind of like, wait, what, yeah. what do you mean here? Because the wording is so similar, but they mean very different things. But Can I you unpack that? I grew up that way. I yeah. grew up that way, right? Like, Right. Oh, they will hate you because of Jesus. Like when you stand up and uh, and shout it out against abortion or evolution, right. Right. people will hate you. Exactly. Um, because of me and Jesus promised this. Isn't this great? Right. And Soren Kierkegaard was aware of that very same. All the elements that we recognize today in Christian, hmm. Christianity existed in Denmark. And he was aware there was a renewal, revival, evangelical type movement in Denmark who was saying that kind of thing. And in 1840s, right? And he and he was like, I'm using my language, Stephen Backhouse language, not Kierkegaard language. But he's like, there's a difference between people hating you 
because you're a follower of the way of Jesus and people hating you because you're a dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> and those are not the same thing. And like people don't hate you because you're following the way of Jesus. Okay. People hate yes. you because you are just being crude and offensive and mean. He's like, the way of Jesus was, you know, why did people hate Jesus? Well, you know, eating dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors, refusing to play along to the, to the power systems of politics and, and religion of his day, caring for the sick, healing, you know, like that's why people hated Jesus. They hated him because right. when they asked him a direct question, he wouldn't give a direct answer. They hated him because he told parables. They hated him because he died on the cross. One of the main reasons people were most offended by Jesus is because he died on a cross and he refused to be triumphalistic. He refused to win. He wasn't a winner and they hated him for it. Right. And this is something you see all the time in the gospel, like that people are most offended by Jesus at the times when he's most refusing to use his power to beat his enemies by being a bigger bully. Well, right. Yes. And people hate him. And yes. that's, and that's so, so Kierkegaard's like, okay, when people hate you because you're a bully, that's not the same as hating you because you're following the way of Jesus. I think that's such an important distinction because a lot of us in these spaces see that, right? It's like, hey, maybe mm -hmm. people don't like you because you're homophobic, right? And you're just saying like very dehumanizing things towards yeah. people. But yeah. I feel like the culture that I swam in and the ones that you swam in, you know, they, Either they don't see it that way or, or they, they have language designed to um, get around that. Like, well, we love, you know, the sinner, but we hate the sin. It's like, well, that's code, right? Just for if you're gay, we don't like you. I mean, that, 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 that's when it usually gets applied. So I'm glad that you made that distinction because I think a lot of people would hear that and go like, wait a second, I've heard that before, but it was weaponized just to be not a very nice person. I would use oh, stronger yeah. language, but we're a family-friendly podcast, you know, but that's kind of the idea behind it. Well, so, okay, so let me go back to a little, to tell a bit more of my story, and then I can talk about why I think this is happening. Great. So the headline is, I think this is happening because evangelicals, it's deep, deep in their self-identity. Remember, I, I was grew up in evangelical too. Uh, you know, a deep in, in our self-identity was, you are entitled to rule. The, to rule. Yeah. You are here to rule. The culture is yours. Mm. Change the culture. Make America great again. Make Canada Christian again. Make Britain Christian. Like, evangelicals just have it deep in their bones that their way is one of the end result of their, the trajectory is to be in charge. Okay. Mm. They're born to power. They believe all of the myths about America as a chosen nation and British empire brought civilization and Christianity to the world, and blah, 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 blah. They mm. believe all those myths. And then they look at the world and they go, we aren't in charge anymore. Something's gone wrong. Secularism has gone wrong. Homosexuals have gone wrong the green movement, the, the climate change. It's right. taken away all our power. Right? right, right. So it's really a loss of power. And yeah. then, so a lot of this stuff is about, this is why the apologetics movement is so popular because it's all about beating your enemies and winning arguments. It's why evangelicals, uh, you know, you line up 10 evangelicals and nine of them will step forward for Trump. Yeah. And it's because of powers. And they will tell you that openly. Like we needed a bully to beat, uh, we were being beaten up. So we needed somebody who's going to beat up our enemies. A hundred percent. And they've offered us power and, you know, you get this just in the, in the mouths. I'm not projecting this onto them. You know, that famous quote from Donald uh, Trump Jr. where he's, he was talking to the uh, turning point crowd, the evangelical turning point people mm -hmm. where he said, you know, we've turned the other cheek oh, yeah. and it's gotten us nothing. Yes. And yes. he gets a standing ovation. Right. You know? we, we, so, we highlighted that on, on, on yeah. a TikTok video because it was so shocking. Yeah. So, 
So that's where, so now this is where my studies came in. This is where I started to look at this because I was so, when I was reading Kierkegaard as a, as an unformed amateur in my bedroom, right. uh, I, I then, I was on a gap year, right? I was ready to go to university and I planned to go to university. I wanted to go to England. Hmm. So a uh, long story short, I ended up going to, uh, to Oxford and I thought I was going to go to Oxford University to study English literature. Hmm. And I was filling out my application form and I, I and there was a checkbox, lots of checkbox, this checkbox kind of day. And there was lots of checkboxes. What, what's, what course do you want to study? And I was all ready to check English literature because that has always been my plan. And I let my pen move a little bit down the line. And there was something called philosophy and theology. Hmm. And I thought, oh, if I study philosophy and theology, maybe I'll learn more Kierkegaard. Maybe somebody will teach me Kierkegaard and I'm not just reading it by myself. Hmm. And it was a very spontaneous decision, and I just checked the box. Wow. And I ended up studying philosophy and theology at Oxford instead of English, because I thought, oh, I'll always like reading literature, but I'm not going to like philosophy unless somebody makes me do it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so I did that, and I chose Kierkegaard options whenever I had the chance. Um, I learned philosophy. I learned theology. I ended up, then I did my master's degree in, in Kierkegaard. I went to Montreal. I went back to Canada. I went to Montreal and did my master's looking at Kierkegaard's critique of Christendom, mm. Christian culture. And then after I did my master's, I came back to Oxford and I did my doctorate on Cri Kierkegaard's critique of Christian nationalism. Oof. So that was, and that was in 2008 that I got my doctorate. So at the time people wow. were saying, oh, Christian nationalism, that's kind of a dead subject. That's irrelevant. Uh, wow. and, now, and I was like, I don't think it is. And then look where we are now, right? Why did you think it wasn't though in two thousand eight? Like, like what, what, what were you seeing then that made well, you go? This is, I don't think this is as dead. Okay, as this you is why I wanted. To, this is what I was going to talk about, Tim. Is that I? What I noticed was, oh yeah, the evangelical culture I'm part of, or was a part of, or is drift. I'm drifting away from. Yeah, cares about creating. They want to dominate culture. They want to create institutions that last a long time. They want to create culture. They're all about changing culture and they're all about running the country and they're all about voting for pe voting. They're all about like, you know, political power and that kind of thing. And, and this is part of Kierkegaard's critique. Then he would call all of that Christendom. Now, a lot of uh, Americans, especially they think, oh, the word Christendom doesn't apply to us because we don't, we have the separation of church and state. <laughs> and Christendom only applies to those European countries that have an official church. Right. But Kierkegaard was not talking about official churches. He was talking about any situation in which the stuff of Christianity, the language, the habits, the literature, the culture of Christianity has become the, the sort of background noise to your culture. Any situation in which politicians have to learn to use Christian language in order to get votes. Any situation in which a business will get more custom rather than less by putting a little fish in its window or or a cross on its sign. That is Christendom. Hmm. It has to do with a cultural imagination of Christianity. It has to do with Christianity becoming the dominant culture or the majority culture. And Kierkegaard, one of his great insights by looking at Jesus throughout some of his books, is like the Christian way, the Jesus way, is always a minority. It's whenever you find a dominant majority, Jesus is always on the other side. Hmm. The followers of Jesus are always asked to be the corrective, he called them, the corrective to the majority. Mm. And, and that right away makes, makes the evangelical dream of running the show 
suspect mm. because you shouldn't you, the, the way of Jesus doesn't run the show. You don't run the show when you're following the way of Jesus. Mm. And that even the triumph of Jesus was to die on a cross. You know, it was, and that's how he exposes the powers to open shame, according to Colossians 2. It's not by like being this victor who sits on a throne and orders all his people around and changes the laws and changes the, you know, the, the, the ways of the land. That's not what happens. Mm. So there's this sort of, uh, Kierkegaard is actually looking at systems. He's looking at how groups form, how groups go toxic. What happens to a group? Like he, he cares a lot about the crowd and mob mentality and mob thinking and stuff. And he basically is like, people will act in a mob in a way they'd never act individually. Right. <laughs> you don't say, <laughs> which is why, which is why Kierkegaard is called the father of existentialism, by the way, because he cared very much about your, your individual existence matters more than whatever group you were part of. So hmm. your essential identity comes not from the groups that you were formed by. There's something about you that is, that transcends any group that might claim your allegiance. Hmm. And if you're part of a group where, where the, the narrative is that if you give us your allegiance, then you will have meaning in your life. Now you're with an idol. Now you're in idolatrous territory hmm. because there's only one phenomenon in this universe that can claim your identity. And that would be your creator, hmm. not your group that you were born into. And so in fact, he's more looking at Christendom as an example of a toxic idolatrous group. Which all humans everywhere do it. And, and it's the Christians didn't invent it at all. Sure. But Christendom has succumbed to the temptation of thinking that they are the group that defines reality. Yes. And that defines your identity and your authenticity. And Soren is just there like a prophet to remind you, you think you've got it all sorted, but there's more to the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's wild that, um, he's writing this in, you know, the 1840s or whenever it is, you know, and yeah. it's like, it's almost like he was writing this, you know, a year ago, right? Like, as you're describing what he's talking yeah. about, how he sees things, it's like, wow. I mean, what, what was, was, was Kierkegaard, you kind of touched on this, you know, you mentioned that, that, that his community, you would look and say, well, I'm white, I live in, um, in Denmark, and therefore I'm a Christian. Was there any other overlap that, 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 you, that, that you can see between like how Christians, how Christian nationalism is kind of mobilizing yeah. today. Well, yes, and also in Denmark. yes. Right. So because it has to do with history and the development of history. So, you know, there's, there's this constant idea that these we're always doing it. We're always like coming up with these historical progress charts. And it's like, and we always put one civilization on top and then we, we sort of rank the other ones below. And we had this idea of primitive and, and societies and the advanced right. societies. And well, like, Christian na national, first of all, Christians didn't invent nationalism. Mm -hmm. They didn't invent it. They just succumbed to it. And nationalism, it, it, part of nationalism is, is this idea that history progresses to a certain place where our nation is on top. We are the voice to the world. We are the ones who bring light to the world. We are the ones who have a certain role to play in this world. All that language where a nation, remember Soren Kierkegaard really cared about human identity and how important uh, individual identity is. And he was really suspicious when group mind or mob think took over your human identity, right? Mm -hmm. It's inhuman. Mm. Well, the, the, the story of nationalism is the story of nations as people. And we always tell ourselves these stories about like, oh, our nation has these characteristics, which it brings to the world. And your nation has those characteristics. And we're like a family. And the United Nations is like bringing lots of different people together. A nation is not a person. Mm. Only a person is a person. Mm. A family is not a person. A city is not a person. 
The church is not a person. And when you start using that language, you're actually like using the wrong language for the wrong category. Hmm. And in fact, nationhood is is distinctly anti-human. It's all about subsuming your identity into a wider story and then believing that story. Hmm. The story is actually telling you something less than you really are, but you're believing it as if it's telling you the whole story of who you are. And it will, and and it's linked to this idea of historical development, that history has led to this place, to such a time as this, where we are now the ones, and you you know you are a a member of this society. And right. the Danes were doing this; they were comparing themselves with the Chinese and the Germans and the whatever, just like everybody does all the time. And Soren saw all this as a real problem, a kind of an an inhuman problem, because it was mm. it was using human individual language to describe something that wasn't human. Mm. And that was actually anti-human. It was demanding that people find their ultimate identity in a mob groupthink rather than in their, well, he would say their identity in their creator, mm. which is, which looks like Christ. That's the, that's the next thing. He was deeply Christian. So he was like, God isn't just some benign gas in the universe. God looks like Christ. Mm. So if your identity is not found in following the way of Christ, then you are following something that is leading you to inauthenticity. Mm. And one of the best organized efforts we have to hide, this is what Kierkegaard thought. He's like, Christendom is pretty much a huge organized experiment in protecting people from following the way of Christ. <laughs> it's so a way we get around. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's how we get around not following Jesus. And you see this all the time, right? With, with violent, like any time I teach the Sermon on the Mount all the time and just without, without fail, the main reasons why any nationalist Christian won't follow the Sermon on the Mount is because you can't run a country that way. <laughs> right. So they, if you ask them, do you think Jesus is the son of God? Yes, I do. Yeah. Do you think Jesus speaks with the word of God? Yes, I do. Do you think you should always turn the other cheek? Only if it right. doesn't bring my nation into right. disrepute. Oh, so you, you actually think your nation is more important than the son of God. Hmm. So you're you're happy to disobey Jesus if it means that it's better for your patriotism, and they do that with money, they do that with foreigners, they do that with violence. All that's that. Okay, so the the audience who engages with our podcast and our community, they know that I am a homeschooled, very uneducated simpleton, if you will. Okay, but part of what led me away and just to even think about these things is exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. um, especially, I mean, there were a lot of things I thought about, but, but when Trump in particular happened, right. And I just watched how evangelicals surrounded themselves mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. Trump. I thought, I don't understand how I was taught from some of the same people who are telling me to vote for Trump today, who were telling yeah. me about the way of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount when I was a yeah. child. And yeah. it, it, it is very difficult because I feel like, and I would love your, again, your expertise and thoughts on this, but it seems like this Christian nationalist culture is really good at, at, at like, um, I'm not sure if, if propaganda is the right word, but very good, like rhetorical statements that make them sound, sound Christian until like you, you go one inch deep. You're like, wait a second. <laughs> like Jesus yeah, would, sure. would not want more AR-15s. Like I think it was Lauren Boeber. Mm -hmm. We covered this too, where she said, you know, if, if he had a gun, he wouldn't have been crucified kind of thing. It's like, yeah. this, this isn't even like a funny joke. This is blasphemous. Like, like, like blatantly yeah, spits course. in the face of like the most yeah, sacred yeah. parts of the Christian tradition. And, and she gets a round of applause while speaking at a church. Oh, I don't understand all that. the time. It happens all the time. It was happening before Trump. Right. It happens yeah. every time your politicians 
George Bush. He gave a speech uh, to commemorate 9-11 and he said, America shines like a light in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it. Obama talked about, he used the book of Hebrews to describe America, which Hebrews was talking about Christ. Uh, Mike Pence said, uh, old glory, you know, set your your eyes on old glory, (laughs) the author and perfecter of our, like, that's right. Americans are absolutely steeped in thinking that their country is Jesus and they do not bat an eye. Evangelicals just never even notice and they cheer and applaud and they've been doing it well before Trump. And outside of Trump, hmm. and 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 this is part of the Kierkegaard critique, which is like this isn't a failure of theology. Hmm. Lauren Brobert isn't a failure of a theology; it's an absolute fruition of a very robust and powerful theology. She's just exhibiting it, like she doesn't fail. She's not. It's not that she's not thinking theologically; she is thinking theologically. Right. She is worshiping her country, and this is what you get when you worship your country. Hmm. And uh, and this is what you get when you think that the, the the trajectory is that Jesus came and then history developed to us, all right? right? This is why this is why this historical development nationalism stuff is 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 idolatrous because it's like Jesus came two thousand years ago, but now we know better. Uh, the whole point of Jesus was to lead to America, right? Right. We are now at the top of the pile. Jesus was two thousand years ago, and he started some good stuff. And that good stuff led to the British Empire. It led to the Roman Empire, and then it led to the British Empire, and then the British Empire led to us. Right. So now mm. we're on top, and you see that that is a theology that is is deep and and long standing, and it, it's not articulated. You know, Lauren Brobert, George Bush, they're not going to articulate this theology, but they are absolutely being formed by it. Let me ask you a question because. Like you said, you got your doctorate in Kierkegaard and Christian nationalism in 2008, you said, right? It was when you completed yeah. your And then your I, I did publish it, but you said I was about to. I actually published it years ago. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Kierkegaard's Critique of Christian Nationalism. And I, it's a very expensive uh, academic text, and I'm I'm always happy to send a PDF for free to anybody who wants it. <laughs> Great. I'll, uh, I'll make sure. If someone reaches out, I'll send them your way so you can send it, because you gave me a yeah, copy of it. And I did go yeah. through the introduction today, and I'm grateful you sent it to me. One of my questions I wanted to ask you, because to be transparent, I... You know, before I started New Evangelicals, I didn't have categories like Christian nationalism. I just no. thought something was wrong. I didn't understand my own faith heritage nearly to the level that I do, and there's still so much more I have to understand. But you seem to be really way more aware of this longer than I have. Have have in from my vantage point, and tell me where you think I'm either maybe on or off here. I feel like since maybe Trump, the Christian nationalism rhetoric and the propaganda has really, while maybe numerically you can argue it hasn't really grown numbers-wise, the actual oh, They're rhetoric, doubling down, though. It, well, that, 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 that's, that's what I was going to say. Like, like yeah. even Bush talking about whatever, you know, he, you, you made the comment about, it, about him citing the Bible in honor of America. I feel like what we're seeing now, though, is such a different level of just like, mm-hmm. this is blatantly just uh, one more step closer to fascist authoritarianism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, are, yeah. Am I seeing things correctly? Or is that, yeah, has yeah, yeah, it yeah. always it's, been it's there? It's become a lot. No, it's always been there, but it's things develop right so things take on momentum and generations so sean foyt is the product of oh, nathan finocchio or whatever his oh, name Finocchio, is. You, know, you know nathan finocchio oh man yeah yeah no these guys are have are you the seen that guy's of- post recently they're they're it's like marjorie taylor green's ghostwriting form it's crazy yeah i know i know they're doubling down they're encouraging it i mean and, and again it's it's antichrist i mean i i don't use that word lightly it is it mm. is the opposite of of anything jesus said or did mm. and it's designed to distract you from it so it's not even just you know honest ignorance it's it's people who in the name of jesus 
are actively encouraging people to do things that are against anything Jesus would have said or done, which Jesus had very sharp words for people like that, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) to lead young people astray, to lead the little ones astray. But it's the nationalism. It's the, I'll be honest, it's actually the patriotism as well. Like we always like to think that patriotism and nationalism are different. I think they're just two, two sort of slightly different ends of the same, uh, on the same end of the spectrum, to be honest, Hmm. that, you know, most, most people's patriotism, they, they most, most of the time you say I'm a patriot and nationalists are what other people do, but really it's, it's all kind of the same. And it's essentially when you think that your country is something that you are going to kill and die for. Yeah. When it comes down to it. And Jesus said, love your enemies and countries. There's not a single country. There's not a single flag in existence that doesn't represent the killing of enemies in the past, the present killing of enemies and the readiness to kill enemies in the future in order to preserve that flag. That's that exactly is right. Yeah. Patriotism absolutely requires the killing of enemies. Jesus absolutely requires the loving of enemies, the turning of the cheek, the laying down of your sword. These two things are fundamentally at odds with each other. You cannot be a Christian and a good patriot. Hmm. You can be a Christian and a good neighbor. You know, you can be a good, kind, fruitful, honest member of your society. But you do find this throughout history. Whenever Christians decide not to be patriotic, then their country will turn against them and kick them out. And that is being persecuted for the way of Jesus. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm not sure if you saw Nathan Finocchio's most recent like 10 slide. Yeah. Thing, yeah, yeah. He, he kind of mentions that where he says, you know, no nation, you know, na- nations have to use violence essentially to establish themselves. Yeah. And then he says at one point, I'm going to read the quote here on slide number seven, the Christian nationalist believes their morality is the least violent and most morally good for their neighbors. Their radical enemy love looks like enacting legislation that will bring the most moral order, peace and prosperity. And then he goes on to say a Christian nationalist understands that if they don't engage in political organization, which at its root is violent. Um, someone else will. Thus, it is yeah. irresponsible and unloving to retreat from the public square. Yeah. So he has this idea that uh, the ends justify the means and might makes right. So mm. if it's a dirty job, but we got to do it, right? Right. And uh, and he's and he also will elsewhere. He will openly sort of admit or say that that yeah, you you have to you have to kill your enemies sometimes to defend your nation. Uh, or he'll say Jesus couldn't possibly have meant that you don't kill your enemies if your nation is in in trouble. And like, well, what if he did? <laughs> and in fact, he did many times. The 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 ancient Hebrew the Hebrews were under Roman foreign occupation. And when he said turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, he's not talking to powerful Romans. He's talking to he's talking to people living under oppressive rule and he had a different way and it mm. was offensive. Mm. And by the way, he was killed for it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, like the right. Romans killed the Romans killed him and the Jews killed him. Like everybody didn't like Jesus because mm. he he was not he wasn't a brave heart, he wasn't defending any particular form of ethnic heritage, he wasn't defending any form of empire. Mm. He basically pissed off all the sides in any of those conflicts and he was when he was given many chances to prove his patriotic chops. And he went against them every time. I'd have to do a Bible study on on that with you. That'd be a lot but, of fun. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this this kind of stuff, you know, um, people like Nathan and the others, they 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 are steeped in the idea that that it's their part of their Christian duty is to rule, is to run America, is to is to make America great again. I mean, it, that's part of their duty. And he, you're seeing that there. He's saying, "Oh no, we must get involved in this, and we can be less bad than other bad people." Right. Is, um, and maybe I'm, I'm off here. Is, is like Augustine's just war theory part of this, you think, as well, where they're kind of like, hey, like sometimes you just have to 
you know, go to war because it's it's just. Yeah, is, is that yeah, part of this yeah. as well for yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is anyway. I have so many things to say about Nathan F. I don't even know if I want to bother. But um, <laughs> well, listen, I'll tell you really quick, just so you know. So, and I'm not sure how much you know about Nathan Finocchio and I, but I had him scheduled twice to come on the podcast to talk twice. And um, he he forgot the first time. Second time he canceled. Said his assistant would reach out and, re- and reschedule. He never did. Nathan and I have talked privately, and in in the reason why I get frustrated with with Nathan is because when him and I talked privately, he was as cordial and polite and respectful as could be. Even said the work you're doing in the deconstruction community is good, essentially. And then publicly, you know, he consistently blasts us, or not consistently, but but he'll say things that are just so out there, including mm-hmm. you know bringing us up. So I find him duplicitous, but lately. More recently, with his with his blatant defense of Christian nationalism, pretty much saying Christian nationalism is great, um, it, mm-hmm. it's not completely surprising, but it is it is shocking in no sense because Nathan, I'm sure you know this, but for the audience out there, so I'll give a quick update. Nathan runs what's called Theosu. It's very entrenched in evangelical mainstream circles with like it's a hey, Hillsong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if you pay a certain, amount of, a certain amount of money a month, you you get access to all of his courses. Well, Nathan's brother, Gabriel, goes to a church called King City Church in New York City, who's, which is run by David Engelhart, which is on the board of Turning Point USA. Okay, so, so, so they're only like one or two degrees away from Charlie Kirk, which is, Charlie Kirk is no moderate. He's not even soft Christian nationalism. He's straight yeah, up yeah. fascist propaganda at this point. So yeah. it is not shocking, but also discouraging to see yeah. this double down yeah. entrenchment from Nathan yeah. about Christian nationalism. Yeah, and and he doesn't. Well, he gives it. He gives a definition of Christian nationalism that nobody recognizes, not even Christian nationalists. So he gives it. He he tries to say Christian nationalism is just like evangelism. Uh, it's just about like bringing the gospel to the all nations. That's Christian nationalism. That is not what any Christian nationalist thinks. That's not what Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks. That's not what Lauren Brober thinks. That's not what Trump thinks. That's not what Hitler thought. That's not what anybody who subscribes to any form of Christian nationalism. It's not what any academic or any scholar, anybody who's ever. So, so Nathan's just trying to use a language that doesn't apply to the thing, and he ignores it. Mm. And then he also will say things like he, he he tries to have a vision that there's such a thing as a he he tries to draw a distinction between being a nation and being an empire. And he says, oh, na- essentially, nations just take care of themselves. They get their heads down. They don't fight their neighbors. Empires are the bad thing. Empires are when you try and seek to expand and exploit and expand your borders. And and empires are bad, but nations are good. Well, the problem with that is that there is not a single nation on earth that hasn't at one time that, it, that didn't come from empire and expansion. Right? Mm. All nations have come. Very much including the one that Nathan is in, right? Mm-hmm. Very much including. So here is this American Christian nationalist who's saying nationalism is not about dominating and subjecting indigenous people. It's Christian nationalism is not about benefiting from the expansion into other people's territory. This, this is the nation he lives in. That, mm. And, and again, it's not even that America invented it. There is no nation on earth that hasn't come from the killing of enemies and the expansion of territory into somebody else's, Mm. for example. Mm. So he's using definitions that don't apply to any real world example. And then when you do try and bring up real world examples, he'll kind of get annoyed or snitty at you. Right. (laughs) So he's, he's living in this kind of theory and he's not actually living in the, in the the, the stuff he's applying. It makes no contact with the real world at all. And then mm. he totally, utterly ignores what's really going on, which is that nations continue to use their 
any means necessary to subject others to their will. Mm. And he's part of that story. And, yeah, and, and yeah. you know, it's so then the Augustine stuff comes up. He keeps talking about how he's an Augustine and he doesn't, he very openly will mock and doesn't like Anabaptists and he'll make fun of Brian Zand. And stuff oh my and, gosh, I know. I've been so, watching that. Now the Anabaptists, so the, so let's, a little history lesson here. Augustine. Go for it. Augustine was a great church father, uh, uh, wrote a book called The City of God in mm-hmm. the 400s. And this is the other thing that that bugs me. So Nathan will say, oh, I'm, I don't like the empire. I'm an Augustinian. Augustus wrote, Augustine wrote City of God as a manual for how Rome should run its empire as a Christian. Mm. And it was used as a manual for empire by Charlemagne, who started the first Roman Holy, Holy Roman Empire in Europe. Uh, it is a, it is a manual for running a Christian empire. And Augustine wanted it to be. So to say, I'm not, I don't believe in empire. I believe in Augustine just shows like, just basic reading comprehension error here. It's, mm. it's, it's crazy to me that this guy is setting himself up as some kind of scholar. So, and Augustine was a, was a, an empire theologian. He had lots of great things to say. He did definitely shape Christianity, but also some of the things he did was he was the first bishop to call on the state to execute his theological enemies. Mm. For example, you know, he was, he, he did believe that you should kill your, heretics with the sword with the sword of the government mm. that unleashed a whole mess of worms <laughs> that is a real problem that is a major turning point you want to talk about turning point usa the turning point <laughs> was when augustine relied on the 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 empire to kill his christian theological enemies they were mm. called the donatists look them up mm. donatus so i mean we've got you know augustus Augustine's heritage is not great. Mm. And part of, and so he, he's the, he's the building block of both Roman Catholic and Protestant theologies of power, mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. way, because he's all about like, how do you create an imp? How do you keep your empire and still call it Christian? Well, one of the things you do is you stop looking at Jesus so much and you start looking at like the old Testament, like the, the 10 commandments and stuff you start right. or you come up with the just war doctrines and these kind of things. Yeah. And the just war doctrines are just attempts to regulate war. And there are attempts for Christians to justify when they're allowed to disobey Jesus, mm. which if you really believe that Jesus is the son of God, you really got to approach this with fear and trembling. Mm. But this is a, this whole thing is an edifice of justifying when we're allowed to disobey Jesus. Mm. When we can be an exception to his rule mm. and uh, the just war doctrines are all this sort of complicated set of, of, of uh, stuff that basically when it boils down to, it's like justifying when a nation is allowed to kill its enemies. Right. And a Christian ruler is allowed to do it with his conscience clear. Mm. No, no, no war that has ever been fought has ever been met the just war criteria, by the way, including World War II. Even World War II didn't meet just war criteria, by the way. Huh. There's another thing where it's it's all theory. It's never practice. Interesting. Okay. And it's all disobedience to Jesus. That's really helpful. And you're saying a lot of things that are just kind of getting my wheels churned, which is why we're going to have you come to a Theology 101 Zoom group and, and lead one <laughs> soon. So uh, so I'll, I'll make sure I share when, that, when that's going to happen. But one question I had that I would like, it's a little more theological than it is about, you know, Kierkegaard or Christian nationalism, but you mentioned how Kierkegaard would say that, like, Jesus was always, like, I guess, in the minority 
Meaning like, like, like once Christianity became a majority, it was problematic. Is that what mm-hmm. you kind of hinted at? Mm-hmm. I mean, that just, again, from my evangelical heritage, right, I think, well, Jesus said to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. How does that work? Like, it, these seem, it seems almost like a, a paradox or an oxymoron that Kierkegaard could say, listen, Jesus is found in the small resistance groups and not in the mass you know, of people, but isn't the point, at least an evangelical would say, to make disciples of all nations to get as many people possible as, you know, save, quote unquote. Does that make sense? Like, how does that well, work? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you make a disciple of a nation. You come out of the nation. So how did Jesus operate? Again, I'd love to just do a Bible study with your with your people, but We're gonna how, make does the, how does the gospel work? Jesus calls people from whatever group they were. The way it works is Jesus calls people to repent, to turn Change your hearts and mind, leave the kingdoms of man that you were born into and come join the kingdom of God. This is mm. how he operates. Mm. And so you're leaving, and, and, and in the gospels, it's always like some national group. By the way, Jews and Gentiles, that's a very important thing to pay attention to. When Greeks or Samaritans or Jews or Romans, that really matters that those people are joining Jesus. Or you're leaving some sort of social economic class, or mm. you're leaving a family. You leave the group that you were born into that claims your allegiance. And then you come to Jesus. And by the way, Jesus's claim is follow me or believe in me. In the New Testament, the word believe is pistos, which you'd go less wrong less often if you realize that that is actually a word of allegiance. Yes, that's Matthew Bates. He does a great yeah. book on this. Yes. Yeah. And so we good. and we are we are a convinced we always say it, it's it's believe in me, which is fine, but we think of belief in terms of an intellectual or a heart you know, knowledge, right? If it's just charismatic, it's all about feelings. If you're a conservative evangelical, it's all about the head. Right. But either way, we're confusing faith with a kind of knowledge. Whereas in the New Testament, it operates as a kind of patriotism. Like a loyalty almost. A loyalty. Have lo- and it has nothing to do with whether you believe, whether you understand Jesus or not. It has to do with whether you're offended by him or not. Mm. Which is why Kierkegaard will say the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is offense. It's when you are almost like morally offended by the way of Jesus. Huh. Now you have a crisis of faith, which is why these conservative evangelicals or these you know turning point people or these patriots, they they don't have a they don't have faith in Jesus because they are offended by his way. Mm. It has nothing to do with arguing whether the resurrection happened or not right. or describing the trinity or something. It has to do with do you want to be seen where Jesus is? And do you want to follow in the way that he followed? And if you don't want to, Peace be on your house, but don't call yourself a follower of Jesus. Mm. And, you know, this is where Kierkegaard said, you, you can be a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean being a follower of Jesus anymore. Being a Christian means all sorts of other things. Well, yeah, we're discovering that, aren't we? Right. And there, well, of course. And so being a follower of Jesus is different. So a follower of, of his way is very different. And it's very rare. And it's in the minority. And where you find followers of Jesus, they will always act as some kind of stumbling block to the majority culture. Hmm. And that's where he talks about the Jesus is a corrective to majority culture. It's, it's always kind of reminding the majority that whenever you find a group of people yelling with one voice, you know, you always be sure there's going to be some people in the audience who have been sidelined or marginalized or their voice has been silenced. And, and, G- and Kierkegaard says Jesus was for those people. Do you, do you think now with the state of particularly American evangelicalism and, and what it exports, you know, its nationalism and et cetera, and even, mm-hmm. even its theological outlooks, right? Very fundamentalist and narrow and how it views certain things, a lot of literalism, et cetera. Um, I wish they were literal about the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden, 
they're literalists until it becomes to Jesus, and then all of a sudden they're saying, "Oh, it's an impossible ideal. Oh, it's just symbolic." <laughs> That's a good point. It's just <laughs> insane. It is like intellectual suicide. It is a broken information ecosystem in the evangelical world. I gotta say, you got me there. That is a fair point. My question is, from your vantage point. You know, people ask me a lot. They're like, hey, Tim, you know, I'm trying to change things from the inside. Some people say, hey, I couldn't do it anymore. I want to burn the whole thing down. You know, what are ways forward here? I'll just say how, where, where I struggle and kind of get some of your thoughts. I I don't want to be part of the cycle of othering people and creating new tribes. Now, my tribe is better than your tribe, right? Yeah, but, yeah. but it seems like what we're dealing with, it's just like, how do you... How could I, right, for our community's sake, we, we say that we try and hold space for people. But if someone comes in and is like, hey, election was stolen and racism doesn't matter, if you can't acknowledge that those things are problematic, we can't hold space for that, right? But that by yeah. definition becomes a boundary, and now we have an other. So what are ways forward that you think about where it's like, what do we do with this? Because I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again, meaning like now I'm the 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 Charlie Kirk version of the progressive left. That's not what yeah, I want right. to do at all. No, right? no, no. That's just, I, yeah, I want to be honest and have integrity. I want to follow Jesus. But it seems like every time we resist this, we get labeled, oh, you're progressive, you're just liberals, whatever. It's like, well, I mean, I'm not saying that some of my views might not be a little more progressive in my political outlook, but as far mm. as what I'm trying to do, it's I'm not trying to hold to buy a Joe Biden flag and plant it on my on my yard. That's not what I'm here to do. What no, are no. some ways forward? You know, with, with well, that kind I think of problem. I think back to back to uh, Nathan F here. I think we pay attention to the very people that he says you shouldn't. So we pay attention to the Anabaptists. We pay attention to the anarchists. Pay attention to Christian anarchists and Christian Anabaptists. Christian anarchists. All right. Noted. These are people who have serious. So Leo Tolstoy, uh, the author of War and Peace, he was a Christian anarchist, for example. And anarchists are not about like lawless throw a brick through a bank window they're not like that oh. what the what anarchy is 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 and so hierarchy and anarchy um. and anarchists are about non-hierarchical power structures and they recognize and it's based deeply based on jesus's teaching they are trying to form themselves in movements and groups that actually take jesus seriously when he says don't call anyone master or when the new testament talks about everyone submit one to another Hmm. Don't seek your own good, but the good of other people. That All that kind of language. Submit yourself one to another. Jesus submitted to, to death, even death on a cross. All of this is, is, is a, quite, a, quite a robust and sophisticated way of thinking about power. Hmm. And the, the anarchists, the Christian anarchists anyway, are trying to build structures that don't then become idols. How do you build a structure, a movement, a group that doesn't right. then take over and become the thing that you are going to kill and die for? Right. What happens all the time. All humans do it. So anarch Christian anarchists are alert to this. They're, they're trying to dismantle a group when it no longer serves its purpose. And its purpose will, should always be to serve the least. So uh, an anarchist is trying to uh, seek flat structures and temporary structures. So you're living kind of, you're very deliberately living in temporary institutions you're not you don't want to build an institution that lasts for generations that's mm. when things go bad it's always when groups go bad it's always because they either lasted too long or they got too big yes always can, always can I, can I pause you for one second because you're kind of hitting on a personal nerve that i want to maybe unpack okay. with you for a minute because i think about the new evangelicals you know i think about like what we what what i yeah, launched a year out. and a half ago right and i think even before you you just had this language that you give me of, of anarchy and, and you know christian anarchists i thought about often i i tell my board this and our volunteers like 
Like, I don't know if this is designed to be like a forever thing, you know, like it's going to have an yeah, end right. and, and hopefully it's not generations or, or I, you know, I tell people, listen, we're not here to become Hillsong. We're not here to become Hillsong. No, we're, we're not here no. to become this massive thing that just no. sucks people in and gets a lot yeah. of money to, yeah. to, to be powerful. That isn't the point, but there's yeah. also the other side of like, we want to help people, right? I mean, I, I think a lot of good ideas start with that. I don't think Hillsong started with let's become a mega empire and take over not. the Christian world. Well, I think they it was, might have tried. Well, maybe, <laughs> but you know, I, th- I think the point was we yeah. want to help people. So I think yeah. that there are good intentions here, but I do wrestle with that personally when it comes to new evangelicals of not becoming the very thing that I'm trying to critique. Does that make sense? Well, of course, and that, <laughs> and the language in the New Testament is that's the principality. We always create powers and principalities. Whenever hmm. two or three people get together, they create a principality. Huh. And your 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 job is to, is it going to be a demonic principality or an angelic one? Ah, and uh, there's lots there. More we could talk about. Yeah, there really uh, is. If you're interested in, in Christian anarchism, there's this is a really good little uh, uh, textbook on it. It's called Christian Anarchism: A Political Commentary on the Gospel by Alexander Christianopoulos. But I really recommend that. It's kind of a classic text in it. The other groups to look into are the people like that, that are, we call the Anabaptists. So we've got the anarchists, and now we have the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were a movement that arose. They had their roots, actually, in the, the English, the Protestant Reformation, not English, the European Protestant Reformation, where the, uh, uh, the, the Protestants said everybody should have the Bible in their own language. And there were a bunch of people that picked up this. They went, great, this is great stuff. Hot shit. All right, we got the Bible. What does the Bible say? Oh, Jesus says, don't swear any oaths of allegiance. Mm. Jesus says, don't pick up the sword. Jesus says, don't kill your enemies. Oh, maybe we should take Jesus seriously because we're Christians. Mm. And one of the things they got out of that was that they they rejected their infant baptism. So anybody in European Catholic or Protestant society, it, baptism was a mark of entry into civilization, right? That, that was your mark of authenticity. You're baptized as an infant into the church, which is what marked you as a legitimate member of your society. So Anabaptists didn't find infant baptism in their scriptures. So they said, we will only get baptized as an adult, as a decision. Anna means again in this situation. So mm. their enemy said, you were re-baptized. You were Anabaptists. Mm. You've you been baptized twice. But they recognized that baptism wasn't about your personal sin. It was about your standing in society. And that baptism, infant baptism, had become the mark of becoming a good citizen. And Anabaptist said, wait a second. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't look like necessarily just being a good citizen. Mm. In fact, it it seems to entail us doing all sorts of things that our governments don't think is good. So we are going to follow Jesus and not our country, not our government. So they they weren't patriotic, they were pacifist, they were so we got groups that, that led to they were basically shot on by Protestants and Catholics, by the way. They were crucified. They were, you talk about Christian persecution. Way more Christians have been killed by other Christians than mm. by secular atheists or Muslims. <laughs> okay. The, the Anabaptists were burnt at the stake many times by mm. Christians mm. because they were trying to take Jesus seriously. Would you just like to pause and think about that for a hot second? Right. And the Anabaptists has led to, there's all sorts of groups now today. You got the Mennonites, the Mennonite movement mm-hmm. is Anabaptist, the Quaker movement is Anabaptist. Um, there, there's lots of people. Um, there's some real good Anabaptist type scholars. You, you, Stanley Harwas comes from the Anabaptist. Con- I don't know if you know Stanley Harwas, a mm, Texas theologian. There's quite a lot out there. Ched Myers, you know, he's writing the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, it's it's a really good movement of people who are trying to take Jesus seriously. 
And one of the things that, that they, Anabaptists and anarchists have in common is you learn to live like a loser. You are a loser, Tim. Uh, that's the title of this episode. Learn to live like a loser. Which learn to live like a loser. You know, winning is not one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, being a, a constant thorn in the side of the majority culture is not going to make you rich. I'm in the wrong industry. Darn. Like you do not live as a winner when you are a constant corrective. Yeah. You do not live as a winner. Kierkegaard yeah. died a loser. He was, he did not see success in his lifetime. Mm. Prophets are not welcome in their hometown, said Jesus. Mm. Which, if you find somebody who's really welcome in their hometown, that's a pretty good clue they're a false prophet. Mm. So if you've got people standing up in a room and they say something and everybody shouts and cheers, then you've got to be careful, right? Yeah. And so this is, this is part of that thing about like creating these large mass mega movements and these mega churches and these really popular blue tick type uh, activities that we have. They are skirting with these demonic powers, which mm. the New Testament called demonic mm. powers are that are principalities of institutions and movements which usurp and take over the the right ordering of human relationships, and they become bigger than they mm. should. And so this is partly where the Anabaptists, their great gift to to us, is is to learn to live in small groups. You live you live simply. You live peacefully. You live out of step with majority mass culture um, and you do it without, you know, you, you actually are, are quite in opposition to the culture, but you do it without becoming a jerk. Like you're not, you, <laughs> right. you oppose culture, but you don't fight them. You don't look like turning point. You don't look like Trump. Right. You look like Wendell Berry. Who I don't know if you know who Wendell Berry is, but everyone I should don't. run, <laughs> run, don't walk to your local bookshop and order Wendell Berry. He's a Kentucky, a Kentucky farmer an essay writer and, and agrarian who writes about, I mean, he's just this lovely pure Christian spirit who writes about peacefulness and slow moving and living responsibly locally on the land. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of good sources out there. You just aren't going to hear them if you're an evangelical. Well, I mean, that is, listen, I've been doing this work now in podcasting for about a year and a half. And just the people that I've discovered in this short time, I'm like, how did I, I never hear about Kierkegaard yeah. or James Cone? I mean, there's just so many, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and so many more that I'm still discovering where it's like, uh, uh, I, I, I thought I was a real Christian here. I, I was 33 years completely engulfed, right? Drowning in evangelical culture. I know who Francis Chan is. I know who Matt Chandler is, but like these guys are like, I mean, and, you know, no disrespect to those people, but, but these are not serious scholars or theologians. They are just good. They're, they're good communicators. Right. And then you discover like James Cone and the cross and the lynching tree. And you're like, holy shit. I never yeah, even yeah. thought about it like this before yeah, or, yeah. Or, 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 or realized what was happening. So I, yeah. I agree with you. One last question I have, um, and then we'll get ready to wrap up here because it's been an hour already, is it seems like I talked to quite a few people who are kind of, you know, thinking about these the, these things in, in deep ways. I feel like like the good and bad of it is that the good news is that this is not this is not a new problem, right? Uh, you know, throughout history and Christianity, we can see this kind of Christian nationalist spirit kind of you know remanifesting itself. So I guess that's comforting, but also kind of discouraging. Yeah, that here yeah, we yeah. are, you know, in twenty twenty two, and people still haven't haven't learned yet, right? Yeah. Uh, how? What do we do with that? I mean, what is it worth me spending time making these videos, critiquing Lauren Boebert, if, if ultimately we're, just, we're repeating the same cycles and nothing's going to change besides I, know. I feel good when I do it? I mean, honestly, like, how do we get real change happening here to, to, to see hopefully a better world for our neighbors? Well, listen, I'd like to be 
I'd like to be in a position where, look, Nathan F. and, uh, and I have mutual friends. If he wanted to reach out, I'd talk to him personally. I have no interest in getting in a flame war with him on Instagram. Right, I, right. I don't, I, when I post my stuff about nationalism, I don't, I, you know, I, I try not to tag his name. I don't want to tag his name. And the, maybe one or two times I've done it, I then regret it. I, yes, I don't yes, actually yes. want to be one of these people that's just uh, fighting human beings. Like Paul said, Apostle Paul said, you know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against powers and principalities, which means if they have flesh and blood, they're not your enemy. Mm. Okay. Mm. It means it's the powers and it's the structures, it's the habits of thought, it's the large movements that we're caught up in. Right. And that's the problem. And 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 so I really want to always kind of be aware of that. And and I'm I'm trying to start to see people not as villains. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm going to be a villain today. Right. But we are all caught up in different movements. Yeah. And I was really struck. Do you know, do you know David Benjamin Blower? Have you ever heard of David? You guys, you every listener should go and check out David Benjamin Blower. He's a musician. He's one of the co-hosts of the Nomad podcast. I don't okay. know if you've heard of the Nomad. And he's a musician, but he also wrote a book called Sympathy for Jonah, which is, I mean, seriously, it's hands down. I'd say it's probably the best theology book I've ever read. Okay. One of the, and it's a, he's an amateur theologian. He's not a professor of, of, he doesn't have a doctor. He's not a professor of theology to his credit. That gives it's me hope. <laughs> yeah. And he wrote this brilliant book called Sympathy for Jonah, which I, which I highly recommend. Um, the other, the other best book I read is Richard Beck and it's called Slavery to Death, which is about the powers and principalities. And Richard Beck also is not a professional theologian. And there's a clue here. The people who aren't professionals sometimes end up with the best stuff. <laughs> but anyway, Blower talks about Jonah. He's really reflecting on Jonah. And, and, I, and I was feeling very frustrated uh, this weekend with, with all this stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. Am, I, am I wasting my time? Like, why am right. I doing this? Right. I'm 46 years old. I've devoted my life to Christian theology. A am I seriously at the point where I'm, my job is to convince Christians that Jesus is better than Trump? Right. Is this really where my life has come to? Yeah. Is this... You know, and there is something wrong. So much has gone wrong to get to the stage where people can say what they say on Instagram and in uh, on right. YouTube and, and stand on their mega church platforms. So one of the things that I was uh, reading is in Jonah, the end of Jonah, the very end. In fact, it's the last verse. So you got Jonah, he goes and he preaches to the uh, Ninevites who are evil and horrible. And he, and he doesn't want to go because they're the enemy um, and he goes and preaches to them anyway. And then God saves them. And then Jonah gets mad and he goes and sits on a hill and he's, he's annoyed. And, jo and God says, why are you annoyed, Jonah? And Jonah says, I'm annoyed because I knew you would do this. I knew you would save these people. And I didn't want them to be saved. They're mm. evil. I want them to die. And uh, God basically says, but Jonah, um, they don't know their right hand from their left. Why should I kill them? There's many of them, and they also have many cows. The end. And that's the last <laughs> line of Jonah. And it really struck me because I was like, yeah, none of us know our right from our left, really. Mm. Why should we try and call down fire? And, and I think it's what's also very interesting is that Jesus in the Gospels, he more, Jonah is two pages long, by the way. If you go and read Jonah, it's very short. Right. Tiny. It's very hard to even find in the Old Testament. Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah multiple times in the Gospels. He actually mm. mentions Jonah more than he mentions a lot of other prophets. And he talks about the sign of Jonah. And a lot of people, especially when I was an evangelical, a lot of people were like, say, oh, the sign of Jonah is the resurrection because Jonah went down into the belly of the whale and three days later he came up. Well, yes, that is part of the sign of Jonah. But guess what else is the sign of Jonah, right? Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them 
for they know not what they do. Hmm. Father, don't rain down fire on them. Jesus was given many options to call down fire on his enemies or to get his followers to kill them with the swords, and he refused every time. Hmm. Father, forgive them. They do not know their right hand from their left. Don't kill them. Don't destroy them. Have mercy on them. And I thought, okay, this is where I need to try and be. Yeah. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus, that means I have to also do that towards my enemies or the people who consider themselves my enemies. I struggle with that. I mean, you know, we have a, a pretty hard, hard line rule of not dehumanizing, which I'm proud to say we, we, yeah. we've never done. So, but you know, there are still days where I just like, internally, I'm just like, I just, I oh, can't, yeah. I can't take it, you know? And, no, it's, yeah, and it's, I have to keep thinking and reminding myself kind of what you said in less eloquent terms of just, you know, is, is what is loving my quote unquote political enemies look like? Right. Um, and how do we do that, um, without re without, without do, without becoming what we're trying to resist ultimately. I know, and, you know I know. Frankly. And you will, you will be corrupted. And these powers, the powers of sort of patriotism and nationalism and the, behind it all is that kind of victorious triumphalism, right? This idea that right. if we get enough people together, if we're all shouting the same voice, then we will win. Right. We will dominate the space. We will purge the spaces of, of voices that don't agree with us. This yeah. is why they don't like critical race theory. It's why they do like the great replacement theory. This idea that like we need to purge spaces of alternative voices. We need to clear this thing. We need to be just for us. And that kind of attitude lies behind all of these human factional movements. right? Yeah. And those are the very movements that the Gospels took great pains to fight and to dismantle and to have Jews and Gentiles eating together in fellowship and this mm. kind of stuff. And so you, you've got this idea. You, we have that also in our, we just want a, our faction to win. Yeah. And we need to have that kind of hammered away with it has to be chipped away. I think. I suppose so that's, that's a where, like, human thing. I suppose that's where repentance really comes in, right? Like, it's this ongoing repentance of like trying to repent from the times that we're complicit in those in those systems, right? Of of trying to conquer our enemy and trying to beat yeah. them and have the better video or or the better talking point, and instead yeah. maybe trying to see it as a way of inviting to 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 build a better world that looks a little more like heaven on earth, you know? And maybe that's I mean, there is the a shift. sense of there is also a sense of like. You don't fight, like, don't throw your pearls to swine lest they turn and trample you, says Jesus. When you go into a village, seek out the people of peace and talk to them. You don't seek out the people who don't want to talk to you. You seek out the people who do. Right. And you build something with consensus. You build something with momentum. You, you build little family units or relational units that are strong and flexible and loving yeah. to each other, right? So I think that rather than see remember evangelicals are just addicted to the idea of winning they're right. addicted that they should win and if they're not winning they think something's gone wrong right and that jesus is triumphant king and then he's like yeah he's a triumphant king how did he actually triumph over his enemies right in no way at all similar to the way <laughs> donald trump and his friends are <laughs> triumphing over their enemies right yeah so uh, so the so the idea here is this like constantly kind of um uh literal blood and tears there are thousands millions of bodies that have been killed because some faction wanted to win right so stop trying to win yeah and just you know tolstoy can i end i know you're i know you're i know you're uh got time can i tell a quick tolstoy parable uh, yes I, I have about five minutes left before i have another meeting right. coming up 
All right. Once upon a time, there was this peasant living in a field and this peasant, uh, he was, a, he was a peasant in a Russian field and he was, he was plowing his field and he took his, his, his hand-drawn plow and he went up and he was going through the, through the field and he came across a demon buried in the wood, in the soil. And the demon's and he's throwing dirt clods at the peasant. The peasant's like, oh no. So he turns around and he trudges home and he gets his best rope and he comes back and he, and he wraps it around the demon's shoulders and he pulls and pulls this rope. And he breaks the rope and he sprains his back. So now the peasant's like, oh, no. And he trudges back home again and he goes to his neighbor and he says, neighbor, I need to borrow your steel chain and your best horse. So he gets the chain, he gets the horse and he goes back to the demon. (laughs) And he wraps the chain around the demon's shoulders and he ties the chain to the rope to the horse's saddle. And they pull and they pull and they pull and the chain breaks and the horse breaks his back. And so now the peasant has to sell his daughter into serfdom in order to pay off the debt that he owes to his neighbor. And so now the peasant is sitting at home. He's alone. The winter's coming in. He hasn't sown his his seed. He's lost his daughter. He's lost all his money. He has no one to help him with the harvest. And Tolstoy says, why didn't he just plow around and keep going? Jesus said, resist not an evil person. Because sometimes, often, resistance leads to making the evil worse. Mm. What if sometimes, what if we just plowed around and kept going? Mm. Hmm. I think we can end on that note of wisdom for our audience to ponder. (laughs) Bit of Christian anarchy to end the day. I love it. Uh, Stephen, truly a pleasure. It's been great, you know, keeping in touch uh, since last time you were on, and I'm sure we're going to do it again because there's so much more to dive into. Um, Where can people find you? Uh, Where can they follow you? Plug away. Oh, plug away. Um, I am the host of Tent Talks, which is a, a podcast that deals specifically about renewing the Christian social and political imagination. And uh, also at my at the website to, to Tent Theology. Uh, so the, the podcast is called Tent Talks, but my website is Tent Theology. And there's lots of resources there, which I made available on a pay-as-you-can basis. Lots of teachings and, and interviews and stuff like that. And Perfect. I've also written a biography of Kierkegaard called Kierkegaard, A Single Life, which is available wherever you find books. Awesome. And uh, you can get a free copy of my nationalism book if you get an email to me. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, honestly, it was great seeing you again. You know, Keep in touch. Like I said, we're working on getting you um, scheduled for um, a, a Theology 101 Zoom group where you're, you're, where you're where you'll walk us through some more of the theology and theological sides of this. So I'm looking forward to making it all happen. Ah, thanks, Tim. Cool. Blessings we'll on all your, all your listeners. Thanks. Thanks.